Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Hi, you're listening to Unknown History and I'm your host, Giles Milton. Unknown History will be back with another new season this summer, but today I have something special to share with you. It's an exclusive segment from a new history audiobook I think you'll love. It's from The Nine, the true story of a band of women who survived the worst of Nazi Germany by Gwen Strauss. The Nine follows nine female resistance fighters who escaped a labour camp and crossed the front lines of World War II. They smuggled arms through Europe, harboured parachuting agents, hid Jewish children and escaped arrest and torture. During the final days of the war, forced onto a death march, the Nine chose their moment and made a daring escape. Keep listening for an exclusive segment from the audiobook. And if you like what you hear, you can buy The Nine now, wherever audiobooks are sold. Chapter 1 Ellen A woman broke from the line and ran into the field of undulating bright yellow rape flowers. She ripped the blossoms from the stems with both hands, stuffing them into her mouth. Though exhausted and dazed, everyone noticed, and her action sent an electric panic through the rows of women. Stunned, Hélène waited for the sound of the gunshot that would surely follow. It could be machine gun fire that would take out a whole section. Any section, maybe theirs. The guards could do this, shoot indiscriminately into the rows to teach them a lesson. But nothing happened. All she heard was the continuous drumming of wooden clogs from thousands of marching feet. When the woman ran back to the column, Ellen saw that her face was speckled with bits of yellow. She was smiling. Then another woman ran into the field and gathered as many flowers as she could, using the rags of her tattered coat to hold them. When she got back into line, women jostled each other to reach her, grabbing at the flowers in a frenzy and eating them. Why were they getting away with this? Yesterday, a woman only a few rows ahead of Hélène had been shot in the head when she tried to pick up a half-rotted apple. Hélène looked around. Their column was overextended. There were gaps between the rows and the sections. There were no guards in sight. Now, she whispered urgently to Jackie, elbowing her. But we agreed to wait for dark. Jackie whispered back, her voice raspy and terrified. Ellen tapped Zinka's shoulder. Look, she said, no guards. We, oui, I see. Zinka nodded and grabbed Zaza's hand, saying, it's our best chance. They came to a curve in the road. A dirt road intersected their route, and parallel to that was a deep ditch. Ellen knew this was the moment. They had to go as two rows all together so they wouldn't be noticed. Zinka, Zaza, Lon, Mena and Gigi, who were in the row in front of her, slid out, 
and then Hélène led Jackie, Nicole, and José. A fifth woman who had fallen into their row balked, saying she was too tired. Forget her then, Hélène hissed and pulled her friends along. Quick! They were nine women in all. Holding hands, they slipped sideways out of the column and jumped into the trench, one after the other. They lay flat on the ground in the deepest part of the ditch, where the earth was damp. Hélène felt her heart beating against her ribs. She was so thirsty, she tried licking the mud. She couldn't bring herself to look up to see if they were about to be discovered, to see if she would die shot in a ditch as she licked the earth. Instead, she looked over to Lon, who was staring up at the road. What do you see? Hélène whispered. Are we visible? Just feet. Lon watched the endless rows of women trudging by, half of them barefoot, half of them in wooden clogs. All of the muddied bare feet were red and bleeding. Lon reassured her that they were hidden from view. In any case, the marchers had passed so many corpses along the way that this heap of women at the bottom of a ditch probably looked just like another pile of dead bodies. With their arms draped around each other and their hearts pounding, they waited for the beat of the clogs dragging on the ground to fade. When the column was no longer in sight, and they could no longer hear the rhythmic pounding of feet, Lon said, It's clear. Now, we need to move. Hélène stood and led them along the ditch in the opposite direction. But they were soon out of breath and overcome with sheer euphoria. They climbed out of the ditch and collapsed in the field. They lay there looking up at the sky, clasping hands and laughing hysterically. They had done it. They had escaped. But now they were in the middle of Saxony, facing frightened and hostile German villagers, angry fleeing officers of Germany's Schutzstaffel, SS, the Russian army and Allied bombers overhead. The Americans were somewhere nearby, they hoped. They had to find the Americans, or die trying. My aunt, Tante Hélène, was a beautiful young woman. She had a high forehead and a wide smile. She had raven-black hair and dark eyes with thick, sensuous eyebrows. She appeared small and delicate, but you sensed an underlying strength. Even in old age, when I knew her, she had a regal demeanour. She was always elegantly dressed and impeccably manicured, and she radiated intelligence. In the photos of her in her twenties, she looked poised and clever. She was a natural leader. In May 1943, she joined the Résistance, working for the Bureau des Opérations Aériennes, BOA, for the M region. The BOA had been created that April to act as a liaison between the Force Française de l'Intérieur, FFI, the name used by Charles de Gaulle for the resistance, and England. The BOA's role was to ensure the transport of agents and messages and to receive parachute drops of arms. The M region, which was the largest in the FFI, covered Normandy, Brittany and Anjou. Right before the Normandy landing, managing this territory was crucial and dangerous. 
the Gestapo was successfully capturing or killing an alarming number of leaders and network members. In the frenetic months surrounding D-Day, Hélène's region was a hotbed of activity both for the resistance and for the Gestapo's increasingly vicious and desperate attempts to break the underground networks. Hélène was 23 years old when she joined. On a break from her physics and mathematics studies at the Sorbonne, she had taken a significant job as a chemist in a lamp company. But as her resistance activities grew in importance, she left that job to work full-time in the struggle against the fascists. She lied to her parents about what she was doing. Her nom de guerre was Christine, and in the Nazi records she is recorded with that name. She would always be known by the group of women who escaped together as Christine. Her commander, codenamed Kim, was Paul Schmidt. At the start of the war, Schmidt was the leader of an elite troop of French mountain infantry. In 1940, he fought in Norway. His battalion was evacuated to England, where he was treated for severe frostbite. After his recovery, he joined the Force Française de l'Intérieur and returned to France clandestinely. In March 1943, he was put in charge of the BOA, and set up a series of reception committees in the northern region. Hélène was one of the 14 agents he recruited. She was responsible for finding terrain suitable for parachute drops. For each drop, she had to gather a team of resistance workers to be ready at the landing sites. Eventually, her work evolved to include establishing liaisons between the different resistance networks in the M region. To communicate information to London about the reality on the ground, she coded and decoded messages that were broadcast over the radio. She waited with anticipation for the full moon when the planes could find the drop site at night. Three days before, she'd listened to the radio. The secret codes were broadcast on the BBC during a special 15-minute portion called Les Français parlent aux Français. The French speak to the French. Hélène often wondered what ordinary listeners thought when they heard phrases like Les souliers de cuir d'Irene sont trop grands. Irene's leather soles are too big. She and her team were waiting in the shadow of the woods that skirted the small field of her favourite reception site in Semblancé, outside Tours. They heard the engine of the plane approaching. She turned her flashlight on and off in Morse code, beaming the agreed-upon letter as a signal. To her great relief, after a moment, the little airplane blinked on its lights. Now, she whispered to her team, and one by one, like dominoes, they lit their flashlights, outlining the perimeter of the reception area. The little plane circled a few times. Hélène's heart raced as she thought of people in the village hearing the loud engine or seeing the white silk of the parachutes glowing in the moonlight as they descended to earth. As soon as the containers hit the ground, her team ran into the field to gather them. They were filled with small arms, explosives, a new transmitter, and new code sheets. And for the morale of her group, the British had included chocolates and cigarettes. As they filled their pockets with cigarettes and their backpacks with small arms, her team heard the plane returning to circle again 
and they paused. Something else dropped into the night sky. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hélène saw the dark outline of a man floating down beneath a glowing white silk parachute. She quickly distributed the contents of the remaining packages to her team, ordering them to disperse in different directions. It was better if they left before the parachutist landed. The less anyone knew, the better. Only two men remained behind to get rid of the empty containers and to bury the parachutes. Not for the first time, she wished she could keep the lovely silk to make a dress. But there were orders. The mysterious man unhooked himself from the harness and lit a cigarette. He stood off to the side and watched Hélène directing the two remaining men. She did not approach him, either. Before they spoke, she wanted to gather her thoughts. Besides, this part of the operation had to go fast. They had to be dispersed from the site within 15 minutes, so that if anyone had seen the parachutes or heard the plane, they would find no one around when they got here. Finally, Hélène approached the new arrival. He was tall and thin. When he pulled on his cigarette, the ember glowed, and she could see his sharp, angular face. He seemed amused. I wasn't told there would be living cargo, she said, barely hiding her anger. Fontassin, he replied, putting out his hand for her to shake. Reluctantly, she took it. And you must be Christine? I was told about you. Why wasn't I told about you? I don't have anything prepared. When she was scared, Hélène tended to sound angry. Fontassin meant foot soldier in French, and the code name had been whispered about. He was someone important. She was glad it was dark so he couldn't see her blush. We didn't want to risk it being known that I'm back in France. The Bosch have breached our networks. We have to be very careful. He handed Hélène a cigarette and lit it for her. This gave her some time to think. But I don't know where to take you, she said, dropping her tough demeanor. We trust you. I will stay in your apartment until I can make contact. He didn't ask her. He ordered her. And he seemed amused that it made her uncomfortable. If my mother knew, she thought. Her mother had gone to a school where boys and girls were strictly separated. 
and the nuns who taught them would tell the girls to avert their gaze as they passed the boys' building to avoid the temptation of sin. Her apartment was a long bike ride away in another town, far from the landing site. Fontassin had a black leather briefcase that had been tied to his wrist during the jump so that it wouldn't be lost. Now he handed it to her and said that they would ride her bicycle together. She could sit on the back. With one hand, she clutched the briefcase, and with the other, she held on to this strange man as he peddled them through the night. She tried not to grip him too tightly, but she felt the heat from his back. They did not speak, except for when she told him to turn here or there. A few times she made him pull the bike over and hide behind a wall or bush while she checked to see if they were being followed. It was a routine she had worked out over time, but this night she was especially careful. The long ride in the damp early morning helped calm her nerves. They arrived just before sunrise. She was exhausted. Her place was small, one main room with a kitchenette and a tiny bedroom. She had decided she would give him the bed and sleep in the living room. But once inside the small apartment, she felt suddenly shy. She told herself that this was her job. She stiffened her back and stood up straight. Fontassin placed the briefcase on the kitchen table and opened it. It was full of money, more money than she had ever seen in her life. He reached in and handed her some bills. No, she said, feeling her face flush red. I don't do this for money. I do it for France, for my honour. She might have appeared indignant, but she was scared. She did not want him to think she was that sort of woman. It's not for you, it's for your team, for the men who were there last night. They do it for France too. She spoke almost without thinking, something she rarely did. For the families then, the ones who have already sacrificed, he said. She nodded because he was right. Her pride and discomfort had gotten in the way of her thinking. Many people were in hiding and did not have access to ration cards. They were hungry. This money would help them. She needed to pull herself together. She took a deep breath. You must be tired. His voice softened. How old are you? She told him she had just turned 24 a few weeks earlier. He sat down in the chair by the sofa and lit a cigarette. There was a long silence. You can take the bedroom, she said after a moment. No, please, I will be fine here. He indicated the couch. When Hélène protested that he was her superior officer, he said, Yes, we are soldiers, but please, let me also be a gentleman. Fontassin's real name was Valentin Abeille. He was the head of the entire M region. The Germans had put a large bounty on his head. At this stage in the war, the Gestapo was relentless. It had been able to plant a few double agents in resistance cells. These groups consisted mostly of idealistic young people who received little or no training and were unable to keep a tight grip on security. Some of the younger men would boast about what they were doing to get les boches, told too many people, allowed themselves to be followed or 
didn't observe the proper safety rules. The average time a person lasted in the resistance before being caught was three to six months. In the end, Fontassin was most likely betrayed by his secretary for the bounty. He was arrested by the Gestapo, and on the way to the infamous Gestapo torture site on the Rue des Saussées in Paris, he jumped from the car. He was shot multiple times not far from the Arc de Triomphe, and died soon after in the hospital. He had told Hélène, during the brief few days they spent together, that he could not allow himself to be taken alive. He showed her the cyanide tablets he carried. The less she knew, the better, he said. Once again, that was The Nine by Gwen Strauss. I hope you liked it. You can buy The Nine now using the link in the show notes or wherever books or audiobooks are sold. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.